Hello, I'm Dr. Amalia Gondas Malka. Welcome to Womanity Woman in Unity, the show that celebrates women's milestone achievements in their struggle for liberation, self emancipation, human rights, democracy, and much more. Joining us today is Tegan Brink, who is the Australian High Commissioner and is accredited to seven countries in Southern Africa, Angola, Botswana, Lesotho, Mozambique, Namibia, South Africa, and Iswatini, as well as the Southern African Development Community, SADC. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Amalia. I'm really delighted to join you. Hi, Commissioner, your career with Australia's Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade has spanned two decades. Prior to your appointment as the, the High Commissioner to South Africa, you had a posting in New York as Deputy Head of Mission, Australian Permanent Mission to the UN, and Chef de Cabinet to the President of the UN General Assembly. You've also served in the Australian Permanent Mission to the World Trade Organization and the Advisory Center on the WTO Law in Geneva. From an academic point of view, you hold a law degree from Sydney University, as well as a Master's of Laws from Columbia University in New York. Firstly, please tell us what attracted you to a career in diplomacy. Look, I've been interested in diplomacy since I was very little. You know how your your parents keep precious pieces of work from school over the years, and my mum kept my kindergarten yearbook, uh, and it asked students what their favourite day of the year was. And I wrote in my terrible five-year-old scrawl that it was the International Day because I got to dress up, learn about foreign cultures and speak foreign languages. Uh, we also watched, when I was in primary school, a TV show called Behind the News, uh, which is a, a current affairs show for kids. It's produced by the ABC, our national broadcaster. And I remember distinctly in 1989, you know, I was 10 years old and I was in Adelaide, right, South Australia, and I was watching people in colourful outfits, you know, standing on a wall with pickaxes, um, chipping away at it, singing, drinking champagne. And I, I knew at that moment, you know, without knowing why, without knowing the term the Iron Curtain, that, that this was a very momentous day for the world and I kind of wanted um, to be part of making these things happen uh, in the future. I'm getting goosebumps because as you're talking, I, you know, I was thinking back to 1989 and thinking about the imagery and the, the celebrations and the pieces of, of this wall. Yes. Wow. And two years of course, we had uh, Nelson Mandela walking out of Robben Island and with his fist in the air and a whole lot of love and, and forgiveness in his heart and, and the whole world saw that. I mean, I, of course, went on to join the Foreign Service 20 years later, uh, you know, just after September 11, in fact, and I think the, the warm glow and hope of the end of the Cold War had long since dissipated, but, you, you know, you don't choose the time in history that you're born. How did you find your way into it? Because there's one thing having these kind of aspirations as a young person and triggers that, uh, you know, resonate with you, but actually finding a, a career path that suits you is a little more challenging. Yeah, so for me, I mean, education was a big part of it and it, it really has been fundamental to my professional development and, and success. You know, I grew up in a single-parent family uh, with my mother. We didn't have a lot of money, but my mother was educated and she valued education. 
So I always worked hard um, academically. I got a scholarship to a to a high school. I graduated as ducks from that school. It led me to to go to Sydney University to do my arts and law degrees. Um, so I left Adelaide, went to a, a bigger place. Um, I worked hard there too. I was a university medalist. And, and that then sort of led to doing uh, my master's in the US uh, as a Fulbright scholar. So, you know, it, it, it built on each other. I actually joined the Foreign Service straight out of law school. So I was one of the, the younger people uh, and, and therefore I think well, one of the younger ambassadors here in Pretoria. Uh, but, but education... And, and that, I think, hard work created opportunities that then created opportunities and it sort of snowballed into a path that I, in the end, walked quite easily. Mm, that's a great formula. And as you say, one step leads to another, but unless you do the piece beforehand, you, you don't have the opportunities that, that they present. Can you tell us about a couple of significant milestones in your career? So perhaps a sort of a, a career slash family one because we're talking about women and 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 work. Um, so back in two thousand and fourteen, I was given an opportunity for a, a promotion. Well, I was I was asked to apply um, for a promotion <clears throat> to be Australia's deputy chief negotiator of the Trans Pacific Partnership Agreement, um, which was the world's biggest FTA negotiation at the time, and it was a highly political and highly technical role. Uh, it involved a lot of travel. Um, you know, flying from Canberra to the east coast of the US takes over 30 hours, uh, and it involved a lot of time with ministers. And my, my kids, my boys, were, were two and four at the time that I was sort of given this opportunity to, to step into a senior executive role in the ministry. And, you know, some women choose consciously or otherwise to, to forego these opportunities, to prioritise the family at, at that time. But I really wanted to do it. I, I really wanted to do this job. And, and I did. Um, you know, life became a bit of an exercise in extreme logistics. And I think parents all over the world will understand this, you know, the school drop-off, the, you know, school finishes at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, who invented that? Then there's after-school care. I'd drive really quickly to pick them up. They'd be standing outside with their little bags in the dark I take them home. We do the the evening routine of you know dinner and bath and reading and bed, and then I would keep working. Uh, you know, I, I had a very supportive female boss who knew that I might have to work at slightly different hours. I also had supportive male bosses. Um, I think if you're very good at what you do, you, you get some of these opportunities. I was also lucky, I think, to have both my mother and my parents-in-law who were willing to come down to Canberra from Sydney and and stay with the family and support my husband when I travelled because just physically it's, you know, obviously very difficult um, when, you're, when he was also working full-time. So, you know, resource management in work as in life is important and so I really, I was quite proactive in seeking sort of assistance to manage um, the, the work-family balance. Very, very interesting. Uh, one of the things you said is you were asked to submit for a promotion. Mm. Yeah. And that's something that I hear a lot about because sometimes women are not putting up their hands or their peers around them recognise their qualities and say, you know what, you really should go for this. Yeah, it's a, it's a good point. Um, and, I mean, I was approached for this because of the specific role it represented and, you know, there's a bit of luck in this, you know, uh, being in the right place at the right time with the right people. Um but it did give me more confidence to go for it 
particularly as I was, you know, relatively speaking, quite young uh, to be at that level. Uh, but it, it, just a, a related point, one thing our ministry has done very well in seeking to uh, increase the number of women in senior leadership and ambassadorial positions is to be very transparent about data. So in our department now uh, for posting rounds overseas, for promotion rounds, they publish data on how many applications they were, how many were men, women, or people who were on, preferred not to say, um, how many were from First Nations people, people with a disability, and um, so that you can see is it that people are applying and not getting the job or is it that people aren't actually applying and so the, the ratio of men to women in the final is actually proportionate to the number who applied and without the data you can't sort of address the issue. And so I think that that has helped, um, I think, in our department in increasing the number of, of people in, in various sort of minority groups in senior leadership positions. That's a really good point. Thinking about your current portfolio, you represent Australia in a very large uh, number of, of countries, uh, seven. Plus, as you mentioned, you've got your family. How do you manage this? So it's a work in progress, I think, <laughs> to be honest. Um, I finally presented my credentials in six of my countries. And so that, you know, I have, I have yet to, to go to Isutini and, and meet the king. But this means that in those six countries, I'm now free to, to travel on my own and um, develop the relationships that underpin uh, diplomacy. Given the, you know, the large geography uh, that I cover, prioritisation is obviously, you know, important. I need to make choices about where I invest my time. And for Australia, that's really trade and investment. Particularly, particularly in mining, where there are great opportunities in, in my neighbouring countries of Botswana and Namibia, for example. Multilateral cooperation is a priority for Australia. One country, one vote. This is a really important principle in world affairs. And development as well, and, and looking at where Australia can add value to countries' development aspirations, for example, in the area of agriculture, where we're very strong, as well as in education. Prioritization is crucial, and I I appreciate that that aspect of multilateralness because it allows things to have a, a scalable effect. So, thinking about different countries, different cultures, integrating yourself as well as your family into a new environment is is a new experience. How have you adjusted to? Some of South Africa's idiosyncrasies, and I, I think the first one, because it is so top of mind, is is load shedding or thinking about sneakers as tackies or traffic lights we refer to as, as robots where you can literally buy anything. Um, please, please share some of your views there. You know, the thing you learn when you live all over the world is that it's actually more similar than it is different. Although I've got to say, robots for traffic lights is a pretty funny term. I, I've got used to it, but it is um, it is quite funny. I mean, one thing that's different here that I that I love, and it's certainly different from our last postings to Geneva and New York City, is that children don't wear shoes, so they don't wear shoes anywhere. You know, in the supermarket, at the rugby, and I love it because it sort of harks back to a, a freer and simpler time that's gone in most of our countries. I mean, my children were born in Geneva and they weren't even allowed to be barefoot inside the crèche when they were toddlers. They had to put on their pantoufles, their 
pantoffles. Um, so, you know, that's uh, that's one thing I really like. Load shedding, I, I, I'm not sure that I've got used to that. I think it's, um, yeah, it, it's a big impediment. I'm, I'm conscious that we, we have a backup generator. A lot of people don't. Um, so I'm really hopeful that there's a path out of this soon. Talking about similarities, differences, tell us something that's uniquely Australian. Um, well, I think what, one thing I've learned about Australia from living overseas is is how informal we are. Uh, and, and this can actually get us into trouble in diplomacy and be misunderstood. I mean, it's, it's a bit, it's not so much of an issue here in South Africa, but, but it, it is noticeable. Like in Australia, people call each other by their first names. So my, my staff call me, call me Tegan. Uh, and, you know, in Australia, you're not respected because of your status. You're respected because of your actions. And self-importance is, is a serious road to, to mockery in Australian culture. Uh, you know, and this reflects our history. It reflects the egalitarian of our culture. You know, everyone's equal. Everyone should have a fair go, this concept of a fair go. So I really love this about Australia, but I do need to adjust when I visit more hierarchical places uh, where I might have to let people call me your excellency without it making me twitch. At the moment, I'm reading Brother Fish by um, Bryce Courtney. So obviously, you know, got this combination of South African and, and Australian. And you can really see that element of equality coming through in his, his language and and some of the sayings. And, you know, fair go is definitely one of them. That's right. Fair go, mate, mate. <laughs> Oh, we chatted a little bit earlier when you were talking about um, some of the interests of, of let, let's say, um, mutual interests for mutual beneficiality of mining, of uh, multilateral relationships and, and development. And thinking about that, there are obviously mutually beneficial relationships between South Africa and Australia, such as the fact that South Africa is Australia's largest export ma- market in Africa. And there's this two-way exchange of goods and trade. Uh, according to stats in 2021, that was $3.1 billion Australian dollars. And the countries jointly host infrastructure for the Square Kilometre Array radio telescope project, which involves, gosh, institutions from approximately 20 different countries. It's huge. Can you tell us about some of the objectives that you want to accomplish in your term? Absolutely. Uh, I mean, to start, I'd say that South Africa and Australia have a lot in common. We have a lot in common. We have a long history of engagement including during the anti-apartheid struggle. We have strong people-to-people links. That is a really terrific base uh, for me to build on, and that's that's my job, sort of to deepen, to broaden, to improve the relationship between our countries uh, with a view to sort of advancing our interests. I think lo- looking at this through a foreign policy lens, Australia and South Africa are both what, what we would say are middle power democracies. They're middle power democracies and we're in the Southern Hemisphere. So we're not major powers, we're not the big guys or the big gals, but nor are we small. We're active multilaterally, we invest in the UN, we use the international system. We're also both multicultural countries. We love sport, we love the outdoors. You're better at rugby, we're better at, better at cricket at the moment. Um, you know, we hosted... Uh, it's a fine line, fine line. It is, 
It is. I'm hoping our rugby line might go up uh, in the near future. Um, you know, we hosted the World um, Football uh, World Cup for women uh, last year, which was a really uh, revolutionary, I think, in how women's football is perceived. And, and the South African team was very popular there. And sports diplomacy is a real highlight of this role for me. Um, but so there's, there's a lot there that's really, really, really good. In terms of, you know, what I actually want to accomplish and, and what I'm prioritising, I want a greater recognition of the opportunities in the relationship to grow, you know, and mining dominates our trade and investment relationship. You talked about goods trade, but, you know, if you look at the the investment statistic, which is $15 billion two-way, you know, it's actually really substantial. And, you know, global efforts to address climate change through decarbonisation strategies actually require more mining. It requires mining of critical minerals, uh, that are used then in renewable energy technologies. So there's a lot of opportunities there and we we have expertise to share with one another. You mentioned the square kilometre array, which is this mind-blowing piece of science I can only begin to understand and there are commercial opportunities flowing from that. Um, another priority, uh, and this is this will be one for a number of, of my colleagues here in, in Pretoria, is, is the G20. So on the 1st of December this year, South Africa will take over from Brazil host, it will be the chairperson of the G20 for 2025. And this will see dozens of ministers from G20 economies and other economies uh, travel to South Africa. uh, And there'll also be a leader summit. And so throughout the year on all sorts of topics from climate and energy to inclusion to health, there'll be a real opportunity for um, deepening the political relationship between Australia and South Africa um, across all of these areas. Fascinating. And I love this view of growth and the fact that we live in a globally connected environment. And I was thinking about scalable opportunities that when you're in a, you know, when you're in one market, that that constrains your your capacity for, for growth. But if you can access more markets, you've got so many more opportunities just by virtue of increasing on, on the numbers. It- no, that's right. Australia and South Africa are also obviously trade trade you know, outward-oriented trading economies. And so the other thing we share then, of course, is a stake in in a, in a you know, stable international order where we can trade freely and become prosperous. And, and that's uh, sort of an important area of cooperation too. We've spoken about the political elements. We've spoken about some of the harder elements, uh, commercial opportunities, particularly on on the mining thing, mining areas. And you also mentioned the support that Australia had given to South Africa during the anti-apartheid years and and struggle there. Last year, I attended an ex an art exhibition that you'd hosted as a tribute to to Bruce. Uh, is it Hague? Hague, who was an Australian diplomat, founding donor to the Ifoletu art collection. And the emphasis was on on struggle art. And I I loved viewing the pieces, the different expressions, the the interpretations. And for me, art and culture could almost be described as, as a soft power, which is both emotive and it also gives a sense for me of not just the artist and their world, but what was being experienced in the time that they they created it or, or their their thought process? And sometimes I find there's an underplay of the value of this kind of mm-hmm. soft diplomacy. Uh, so can you 
just discuss in in your views of how cultural diplomacy can support economic partnerships and and trade relations, even if it is with the the, the sporting element that you mentioned earlier. Yeah, look, soft power is hugely important, um, particularly where you don't have a lot of the hard power. Uh, and, you know, culture, art, music, it's universal. It's one of these things that everyone, every culture in the world has and enjoys. So it's a great starting point, like sport. It's a, gr- it's a great starting point for, for a relationship. You know, cu- cultural like performances and art isn't always front of mind when you think about trade. When, you, you know, when you're drawing a picture for, a, for an infographic on trade, you have, you know, someone in a hard hat and you have goods going onto a ship and being sent across the ocean. But cultural industries are huge employers of people and we I mean we learned this during COVID during the lockdown when people you know couldn't couldn't work how many people work in in the cultural industries and in, in, in performance in music um, and actually recently the Soweto Gospel Choir I think traveled to Australia and performed like over a hundred shows wow. uh, it was extraordinary my my mum um, saw them in Canberra I was I was so pleased and Ifaletu uh, that which you mentioned has a very special place in the Australia-South Africa relationship given the anti-apartheid activities of our diplomats that kind of saw its founding. Uh, and they are currently planning some significant um, exhibitions to coincide with 30 years of democracy here in South Africa. So um, watch this space. I look forward to, to being involved in those. Thanks for sharing your your perspectives on that with, with soft power and how... It becomes tangible because of what it does in, in connecting people. You're listening to Womanity, Woman in Unity, and today we're talking to the High Commissioner of Australia, Tegan Brink, who is accredited to seven countries in Southern Africa. We would love to receive your comments on Twitter at Womanity Talk. Uh, Hi, Commissioner, the show, Womanity, Women in Unity, advocates for, for gender equality. Um, some of the unfortunate there are still ongoing ongoing challenges that women face, and these include things like unequal pay, underrepresentation in leadership roles, lack of access to opportunities, bearing the greater load of, of unpaid work in, say, domestic chores. Can you please tell us about Australia's official stance on gender equality as well as its commitment to promoting gender equality both domestically and internationally? So, Amalia, can I first say that I really love this word and concept, womanity, and I, I'm going to try to use it in everyday speech and, and maybe if we all do this, and I'll try and get some of my female friends to do it too, we can have it included in the Oxford English Dictionary. Um, I really love it. But to your question, so gender equality, gender equality, women's empowerment are extremely important to the Australian government. The government is committed to advancing gender equality and ending gender-based violence, uh, both in Australia uh, through our domestic policies and funding and through our foreign and development policy. And, and actually, this has been the case for successive Australian governments. We've had three female foreign ministers in a row now from different sides of politics and gender equality and the empowerment of women and girls has been a priority for all of them. Why? Why is that a case? Well, I think, you know, the evidence is clear. Societies are more stable, they're more prosperous, they're more resilient with higher levels of gender equality. So if you want to address those issues, education, um, the economy, um, peace, 
you need to invest in women and gender equality. And so it's one of sort of the key levers you have to achieve those bigger things. Do you echo any of the programs that you have from a domestic point of view in some of the markets that that you work on, um, you know, in, in Southern Africa? Absolutely. So, you know, in Australia, um, the, the government supports a range of initiatives, uh, for example, around increasing paid parental leave, um, preventing violence against women and children, uh, increasing interventions in that area, including in the cyberspace where we're seeing sort of harassment of women. Um, we also, within Australia, uh, the government is supporting uh, um, Women in Elections initiative, which is helping to build the skills and create mentoring for women to support the mentoring politics. And so those kind of values and priorities also flow into the work that we do internationally through our aid program. So we have a $4 billion aid program overall, and um, we have a policy that requires 80% of that expenditure to be on um, programs and projects that have a gender equality objective. So not as the only objective, but the, the, the objective here is to mainstream gender and ensure it's in all of the other programs, whether it's about disability, trade, um, health. Uh, in terms of uh, the work that, that we do here at the Australian High Commission, we also have um, gender equality as one of the priority areas in our direct aid program, which is sort of a, a small grants program for NGOs in the seven countries that I, that I cover, and we have a range of, of projects that we're supporting, including in entrepreneurship and skills development um, that, that benefit women. Thanks for sharing that overview. Can you tell us about a few Australian women that have been or are trailblazers? So one, one woman I'd, I'd identify um, who was important for me uh, is Natasha Stott-Despoyer. So she, she was the youngest female parliamentarian in Australia. She entered in 1996, which was my final year in high school, and she walked into parliament in Canberra in a pair of Doc Martens, and it had an impact on me and my peers, uh, and it sort of changed the face of, of what politics was and, you know, what it meant to be involved in politics and who could do that. She went on to leave, lead the Australian Democrats' political party at the time she was very active on women's political participation and in her post-politics life has really focused on and elevated the issue of gender-based violence. Um, she's currently a member of the UN Committee for the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women and she's currently seeking re-election for a, a further three-year term. So, yeah, Natasha Stott-Despoyer, she was a, a trailblazer in, in many ways. And who have been some of the strong women in your life personally? My mother, I think I have to identify my mother. She, you know, she was a migrant and a single mother. Uh, she was educated but needed to sort of re-qualify as a teacher in Australia. So um, when she was doing her diploma of, of teaching, a diploma of education at the time, she was doing that at night and cleaning houses in the day and I was two years old. And she, she no, nothing could stand in, in her way or that's what it seemed to me when I was a child. So she inculcated in me a sense that I could achieve anything I wanted to uh, through hard work uh, and perseverance. And, um, you know, that's had a huge impact. 
You mentioned she was a migrant. One of the things that really stood out for me in uh, in an interview with your your, your predecessor, Gita Kamath, was how open Australia is in terms of welcoming people and creating these opportunities. And I think that goes back to what we said earlier about um, fair fair go or fair game in that you're, you're, you're not restricted. Everybody is treated as, as an equal. You make your own way. Absolutely. And I mean, it's, um, you know, other than our First Nations Australians, you know, Australia is a country that is that is built on migration, and it's it's integral both to our economic success, uh, but also you know our su- success as a as a multicultural society and, and democracy. Who we are, um, who we are. So no, that's something that I'm I'm very proud as, of. It doesn't happen by itself, of course. I mean, the government does have to have supportive programs to help people um, adjust, integrate, learn the language, um, access. Um, access healthcare and education, um, but I, I think it's it's fair to say that Australia has done this very, very well over the last sort of 30, 40 years. Hmm. Reflecting on on some of your roles as, as a leader, because I think that women in leadership is really important for a number of a number of reasons. One from a perspective of visibility, of role modeling effects. Uh, can you share with us some of the leadership strategies that you've found to be effective in the various roles that you've held? You have to be yourself, I think, and, and believe in yourself. Uh, there's not, you know, one leadership approach that, that works. You know, authenticity matters. And so you have to know yourself. I mean, as a, as a generalisation, uh, I, I think women tend to second-guess themselves a bit more. Uh, worry what other people think of them and I you know I try and overcome that by by working hard and being prepared by preparing well for my engagements by reading widely and informing myself I think one one strategy that I have very consciously deployed I think is developing and maintaining networks and it doesn't have to be a formal formal thing you know I I've never shied away for from asking for advice asking for help whether from your peers, your superiors or, or people in your team. And I'm a strong believer in inclusive leadership, that people lead at all levels and it doesn't disempower me to empower others. You know, it's actually being proactive about, about your own development and comfortable in your own skin. So um, those are some of the, the strategies that I've employed. That's a great, I, I love the view of being able to empower others doesn't mean disempowering yourself because often people feel that they relinquish their power, that that's it, it's it's gone and they've got, got nothing to hold on to. You also spoke about networking, which honestly, I think women, uh, based on the conversations we've had over the years, have not been as good as they could be in utilizing and and forming their their networks and and you know sometimes that's prohibitive because of timing or where they are in in their careers what would be your top 3 tips to encourage younger women to pursue positions of leadership I mean, I think you've got to love what you do I think if you love what you do uh, and you work hard the rest sort of flows from it um, you know self-belief um, networks asking for help and then also you know not being afraid to reassess I mean I've I've stepped out of 
the Australian government and foreign service twice in my career to try other things, thinking, oh, maybe I'll, maybe I'll, I'll just be a lawyer. I'll, I'll focus on being a lawyer and an advocate, or maybe I'll join the United Nations. And, and both times I did that, I enjoyed it. Um, it was rewarding. I learned things. I learned things about myself, but I came back. And it's not, you know, it's, you're not failing to say, oh, actually, I should have just stayed in the last job because that, that's the job I want. It, it's okay um, to, to change your mind. But I guess what you don't want to do is, is have regrets uh, of not giving a go and not, not trying. I think regret is, is the worst thing. So if you want to do something, there's not one way to get there, but you've got to start. You've just got to, got to walk the path. And that sounds like opportunities for, for growth, right? uh, you know, moving, moving on, experiencing new things, reassessing, incorporating those learnings and, and moving into a different direction or changing when you, when you return to a, a, a post or environment. You are now in this position, um, but the steps to get there, everybody has a, a unique path. Uh, and one of the questions that I ask all my guests is, is about what they feel have been some of the factors that have contributed towards their success, whether it was values, uh, particular people, faith, focus. So can you share some of the aspects that you feel have contributed to your success? Yeah, I think we've probably talked about them um, in, in the course of the, the discussion. Uh, I mean, it starts with curiosity uh, and interest, you know, getting involved, um, participating. Uh, I think having, having goals and ambitions, working hard, uh, there's a bit of luck involved, right, timing, luck, having the right people around you. Uh, but, you know, I've, I've, I've had good supervisors, bosses, supportive family, and I've always sort of had a sense of, of what I've wanted to achieve. So, you know, I, I think, you know, maybe this is not a this is not an inspirational comment, but working towards your goals methodically, you know, can achieve them. And that's sort of what I've done, one step in front of the other, um, but not not being scared to sort of re- to reassess. And you know, when you have a family, things change and um you know where you want to where you want to go changes, but your your career can have several stages as well. It's not just one one straight line. Uh, and during your life growing up, tell us about a couple of, of pivotal moments that had a big impact on you. Oh gosh, Amalia, this is a big question. <laughs> this is a big question. Um, Pivotal moments. I mean, I, I think the point I made before about, you know, leaving leaving my work and doing something else and coming back, I mean, they, they were quite important to me. I think living overseas was sort of also shaped me. I, I always took opportunities to, to travel and study overseas. I studied in the Netherlands. I did a, a Chinese law course in Shanghai in the 1990s, which was sort of extraordinary and, and at the time, I also studied in the United States. So having a global kind of outlook, I think, helps. And it helps more and more now that the world is so integrated. So taking those opportunities and not, you know, not letting things get in your way. I mean, I, I, I also played a lot of representative sport when I was younger and had an opportunity to play softball in America. And I did, we didn't have a lot of money. But my mum sat down and she had a pen and a piece of paper and she's like, okay, how much do we need? When do we need it by? How can we save it? 
And, you know, I, I delivered newspapers when I was 11 years old and, you know, we had a raffle that we organised and I went door knocking. So, you know, if you want something enough, um, you, you can usually get it. That's such a great lesson. It really, really is. And lastly, as we close out our conversation today, can you share a few words of inspiration or, or motivation that you'd like to pass on to girls and, and women who are listening to us? Um, sure. So, look, I mean, I think it's a fantastic time um, to be to be a, a girl and a woman. I think um, the issues we face, the discrimination we face is out there. People are talking about it. People want to do something about it. And it's important that we all sort of keep it on on the agenda. I guess my message is a simple one. If you have a goal, go and get it, you know, work towards it methodically. Um, you know, maybe it won't work out. Life gets in the way. You know, you change your mind, but you, you, you can't win if you don't play. So, you know, you need to give it a red hot go. That's going to be motto of the week. If you can't, you can't win if you don't play. Truly. Got to have, got to have some skin in the game. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been a real pleasure chatting to you, hearing about the work that you're doing, hearing about what's next on the agenda, and we wish you all the very best during your, your tenure in the continent. Thank you, Amalia. You have been listening to Womanity, Woman in Unity, and we've been talking to the High Commissioner of Australia, Tegan Brink, who's accredited to seven countries in Southern Africa, Angola, Botswana, Lesotho, Mozambique, Namibia, South Africa, and Iswatini.